Okay, let's pray. Father, pray as we've been praying this morning that your Holy Spirit would come this morning and make your word alive and open our eyes that we might see you, Lord Jesus, and be changed. Please do this, Lord Jesus, and Father, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As we're turning there, I thought to ask the kids, did you listen to Carrie's story? That, uh, that story is one of the many stories that you'll hear over your life that will, I'll share a scripture today where Paul tells the Corinthians his hope in his heart was that their faith would rest on the power of God. So, you kids sometimes wonder, how do I know if God's real? How do I know God's real? That story that Carrie told, that man's life was totally changed in one day, in one moment. His, his testimony on the phone to Carrie is, my life has changed. I could have been struggling and trying to change myself for however old he is, 30 years, 40 years. And then God comes into a person's life and they're changed in one day. And they think it's like strange. What's happening? Things are totally different now. May we all have stories like that through the years. It's just a wonderful... Paul was telling the Corinthian people, don't let your faith rest on the wisdom of of men, but let your faith rest on the power of God. Perfect example. Is God real? Can God change our lives? There's a perfect example. Look at Him. Look at God. In the Scriptures to the Corinthians, in the one that we're going to read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of God is, there's freedom. Uh, let your mind think about that. Well, you know enough about the word freedom. Where the, where the Spirit of God is, there's freedom, there's life. There's, there's life the way it should be. Freedom. That came into this man's life. He's, he's realizing and tasting, this is, what, this is a little bit of what life is meant to be. This freedom that I'm feeling in my life now that I didn't feel before, now that God's in it. And it says, verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The other word, from Carrie's story that stands out from that scripture there is it's transformed, changed. Something different has come inside that man's life. And, you know, you could hold a gun to his head and say, I want you to deny you've been changed, and he couldn't do it. It's so real to him. The change is so real 
he couldn't, he'd know he'd have to be lying just to save his life, to deny that what has happened to him is real. That's the power of God. That's what God wants to do in our life. And he wants to do it in my life and in your life. He wants to change us. But as we'll see from what I'll share today, where God's word says that we see dimly. We don't. We don't see with the crystal clarity that one day we will see when like Seth or others that have gone on to step into the glory of God. I mean, like the glory of God that we'll see when we die and we come into the presence of God is beyond, I think, anything that we can imagine. The, The Bible explains it a little bit. Uh, to us, which we'll look at today, but we only see uh, dimly. One day we'll see. So much more clearly. And first Corinthians 13:12 says, "For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Um, This is, of course, you know, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. And remember that Paul had also told the Corinthians about a man, talking about himself, who had visions and revelations of the Lord, a man who was caught up into the third heaven, a man caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul was telling them about this real experience that he had, that when he was caught up into the third heaven, he heard words that he described as inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul was experiencing something of the glory of God that was incredible and that he heard words that were inexpressible that a man is not even permitted to speak you remember in exodus where god, moses wanted to see god's glory and god said no one can see my glory and live but i'll put my hand over you i'll pass by you and let you look a little bit behind me and think of the glory of god the real true glory of god Paul was a man who had seen numerous times the glory of Jesus. And he also saw in that passage in Corinthians the necessity of a messenger of Satan to be sent to him to keep him from exalting himself. So Paul is telling them we only see dimly, and yet he had visions of things, inexpressible words that he man isn't even allowed to utter. That was his own experience, and he's also writing inspired by God. We only see dimly. We see darkly. We, we, some things we're not really sure. When you think a guy like Paul would, he could have just boasted in his revelations and said, this is what you should experience. You should experience these third heaven experiences. I'm going to tell you what I heard in heaven. And, but he didn't. There was something in the glory of God that is so incredible that it just shut him down, so to speak. And he kept those things inside because he knew that he should because of the greatness of the glory of God that he saw and it changed him. And there was a reverence there uh, when he saw the glory of God. How do we see the glory of God? How do I 
I want to, I hope that the Lord helps us re, understand better what that phrase means, seeing the glory of God and seeing the verse that we read in Corinthians, that we are changed. As we see the glory of God, that we're changed. The glory of God means the character, the how God reveals himself, who God really is. We get flashes where we we see it for a you get a flash of seeing it in Christ, usually through His Word, and you see it in Christ for a second. And like those we read about in the Word who saw the glory of God, what was the effect? Usually there was a fear and awe, falling on the ground. Uh, wow, God is huge. God is big. God is powerful. I'm not. There's different ways that we see that. I'll share with you one in Proverbs chapter 8. If you turn there. As you're turning to Proverbs chapter 8, there was a quote a few weeks ago that LeBron James, the basketball player, had met Michael Jordan. And he said, well, the first time that he had met Michael Jordan face to face, he said it was like meeting God. But he, LeBron, he doesn't, that is the most blasphemous, terrible, like, he doesn't realize it. That's his experience that meeting Michael Jordan is like meeting God. That's terrible. It's our hearts should be, pray for LeBron. That's your experience on this earth. That's your life that you meet another human and you think it's like meeting God. Well, that's what happens when we make a person or something a God in our own heart. There's a reverence for that that is blasphemous to God. That's terrible to God. It says, uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. He's talking here about wisdom and about Jesus. Before His works of old from everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, verse 30, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom, and it's talking about Jesus, was there beside God. And in my margin it said, Verse 30, and I was daily as delight, playing always before him. Verse 31, playing in the world. Do you think that was before the world was? And this is way back, right? Do you see Jesus in that way? Playing? Playing always before him. Playing in the world. His earth and having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom in Jesus, I don't want to make the scripture something it's not. My picture was that, you know how you play sports? 
what God meant sports to be. He meant there to be a freedom. And I picture Jesus there with his father, full of joy. You know, when you see a little kid playing something and they're just enjoying it and having so much pure, innocent joy that there's that dynamic between Jesus and his father. He was there before enjoying creation, enjoying his father, that he wants that for us. That when we play something like sports, I see the opposite in me (laughs) many times in sports. But when I look at Jesus in this way and I look at the glory that's there, the character, the who God is, I ask God, God, can I play like that? Can I be in a game and can I play with this freedom that you that the Holy Spirit brings into our life? Can I even play a game like that or is that not spiritual? No. God wants that freedom in our hearts that we see there in Jesus. That's how Jesus is. He loves He's holy, he's awesome, and he, there we see he's playing. There's a pure, perfect, rejoicing, playing, enjoyment that he has there with his Father that I believe that's what he wants for us. He wants that aspect in our life. As I see that from his scripture, then I see some of the glory of Christ and I pray. And you do too. You say, God, I want to be like that. I want that in my life. And the scripture in Corinthians where we behold his glory and we're changed from one glory to another, that's the process, how it happens, that we see the glory of God in something. We see Jesus in something. We see ourselves and we cry out and say, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to play like that. Paul said in Corinthians, he learned to be well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Jesus' sake. Weakness, distress, persecutions, difficulties. What was it about Paul that he could sing while in prison? What was it about him that he could see all the sin in the Corinthian church and be a gentle, strong man of grace and truth? What was it about Paul that he endured five times 39 lashes from the Jews, being beaten times without number. Just think of that phrase. Paul wasn't lying. Beaten. He couldn't even count how many times that he'd gone through beatings. He had dangers in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. He had dangers from false brethren. He had sleepless nights. He went without food. He had seen and continued to see the glory of Jesus, the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians 1.5, if you turn there. Second Corinthians 1.5. Isn't that what we want to know? Like how did Paul go through weakness, distress, persecutions, difficulties... We can apply one of those things or all of them or some of them into our life. How did Paul not lose heart? How did he stay encouraged? How did he... It was that he continued to see the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5, it says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort 
is abundant through Christ. We don't want to live a Christian life where the sufferings of Christ are in abundance. And they just keep coming in abundance and abundance and abundance. And we miss the second part of this verse where he says, also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So yes, I have the sufferings. I share in the sufferings of Christ. So do you. We need the second half of that verse in our life too, that we also share in the comfort. That it's there in abundance. The comfort of Christ. John Owen was a Puritan. Um, and I'm going to quote from him a few times today. He says, One view of Christ's glory by faith will scatter all the fears, answer all the objections, and disperse all the depressions of poor, tempted, doubting souls. To all believers it is an anchor which they may cast within the veil to hold them firm and steadfast in all trials, storms, temptations, both in life and in death. Paul experienced both the sufferings of Christ and also the abundant comfort of God through Christ. If we don't experience the same, then the cross, the weaknesses, the distress, the difficulties, the testing of our faith will leave us bitter, resentful, and unloving. We have to have the second part of that verse. We have to experience the comfort of Christ along with the sufferings or we'll get bitter. We'll get angry. We'll... Our heart will slowly turn against God, saying things like, it's not fair, why is this happening to me? Uh, Self-pity, discouragement will come in. Unless we, How do I experience the comfort that he's talking about there? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we'll be there a lot too. The testing of our faith can leave us bitter. You've probably experienced it to some degree in your own life. You probably know other people that something has happened of suffering, disappointment, the things Paul's talking about, and the result is that their heart has become bitter, resentful, angry. Paul says, or it says, we might agree, I say, <laughs> I wrote here, <laughs> we might agree with Paul when he says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says that. You know the Corinthians were fighting over, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul, I'm of this person. And Paul saying there's only one foundation, Jesus Christ. This declaration was stated by Paul to lead the Corinthians into the glory of Jesus that Jesus spoke of in John 17. You remember in John 17, and Jesus prayed, said, The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Now look back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, in verse 12, Paul says, There's no other foundation but Jesus. Here's what the Corinthians were saying. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, what about that last one? Isn't that person saying the same thing that Paul just is teaching them? There's no other foundation but Christ. There are people in that church saying, I'm of Christ. And yet Paul in chapter 3 is telling them you're fleshly, you're fighting, you're arguing with one another. And you might have five or six of the people say, I'm of Christ. But we have to look below the surface in our own hearts behind what, what's behind the statements that we make. 
we can say, I am of Christ, and it be a point of contention with others. I'm of this person, I'm that person. I can even say, I am of Christ, and I can say that in a prideful way, looking down my nose at others. And that's what Paul was addressing with them. You're saying the right thing. But underneath in, in our heart, we can be proud of that in that we look down on someone else and think, well, they don't have quite as much of Christ as I do. We can all be guilty of that. When we sense that at all in our heart, we should, Lord, help us, have mercy on us. Because it is a tendency in each of our hearts to get to that point where we're saying, I am of Christ, I agree with you, Paul. But he's saying your attitude in your heart is leading to jealousy and strife, not a humble love for God. Paul was telling them, he says in this letter, stop boasting in men, stop boasting in your doctrine, stop boasting in your gifts, stop being arrogant one against another, stop putting your faith in the wisdom of men and realize, realize this. Things, he says here in verse 9 of chapter 2, things which eyes have not seen and ear is not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Think about heaven in that way. We're there, we're going to see the glory of God in a way that you, we can't imagine. He's describing it here. There's, it hasn't entered the heart of man, the mind of man, the things that God has prepared for each one of you, each one of us. That's the, you, you know how you, like, I, you, in my heart, you're like, I want to know more. I, it seems like I'm just seeing it dimly, right? I'm just... Just open it a little more to let me see your... We talked about, or I, I mentioned LeBron James' his comment about Michael Jordan. The kingdom of this world in this earth is so different from the kingdom of heaven because the heroes on this earth are people like the people we'll watch in the football game today and people like athletes or people who are really smart and have a lot of money. That's the kingdom of this world. Those are the heroes. In God's kingdom, uh, kids, your parents will can encourage you when they get home that this is true. When Carrie had the when the, when that transaction, that transformation started in that man's life, you can't imagine the roar in heaven of. How can, you can't it like a think of Niagara Falls, the roar of that water just roaring it's so loud you can't that's the roar of joy in heaven over one one man who turned to Christ. Paul says in Corinthians that when a person turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. Now I can I have a chance to see the glory of God and the the joy the roar the in heaven over this one man who turned from taking his life to Jesus. The veil was taken away. He saw some of the glory of God. And heaven is so happy. I mean, just think of running in heaven. Like, I don't know much about cars, but just pedal to the metal. And there's no RPMs. It, you, just, it, you just keep. The engine is just going faster and more joy. And uh, 
sorry, you know, you try and explain what it's going to be like, and you think, like, what are you doing? It's so, such a paltry explanation, but heaven, God's glory. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Here are some real heroes. Here are some people that God looks at on the earth. He's not concerned about LeBron's comments. They don't bother him so much. He has a heart of love toward LeBron that he might be saved and he might see what's written here. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those are heroes. Those men that were beheaded because of the testimony, because of God's word. Then we get to look into heaven a little bit more in verse 11, 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Just think of that verse. A great white throne and Jesus sitting upon that throne, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. Earth and heaven fled away at the presence of the glory of Jesus. Where else do we see the glory of Jesus? A couple other examples from Scripture. You see the glory of Jesus when He's asleep in the boat. Remember when He fell asleep in the boat? The people were perishing. And they're saying, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And He's asleep in the boat. And His response to them is, do you still not have any faith? And then he spoke to the elements and the, there was a calm. And what came over the, the men there? Fear. Awe. They, wow. This is who God really... They, who, they said, who is this man? We can look at it and say, that's God. That's the glory of God. And Jesus speaking to that storm and it's gone. And we were so afraid of dying. You see the glory of God when Lazarus was dead. And he told uh, Lazarus' sister, he said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. She was so worked up and so anxious and so afraid. And have you ever been there? Some kind of circumstance. And then you sit down and you read your scripture and you say, look at this lady, she's just like me. I'm nervous, I'm afraid, I'm angry that my brother died. And Jesus said, didn't I say if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? There we see the glory of God when Jesus was at the home of the Pharisee and the lady who was a sinner came in and anointed his feet and the Pharisee was there and Jesus was, in a human way we could say, kind of rude to that Pharisee, but he was exposing how that Pharisee didn't love him and he couldn't see and he was blind. But this one woman who was a sinner and anointed his feet, she was blind. So Jesus allowed her to see. So she saw the glory of God and she was filled with tears and thankfulness. And he said, don't you see how much she's loved me? Ever since I came in here, she's been, her eyes have been fixed on me. 
another was where Jesus was transfigured on the mount. And what came over the disciples there? Awe, fear. Where God said, this is my son, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him. And they saw the glory in an incredible way while they were on the mountain. There was a man uh, of the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, I don't know, really know uh, a ton of the history of that. It was just that they were under a tremendous persecution. His name was Samuel Rutherford. Thinking of examples of people in their life like us who had spent time seeking to see the glory of God. Because I, in our lives... It's really important, I know in my own life, in your life, that we spend time seeking the glory of God, experiencing. We should experience in little ways, sometimes in big ways, many ways we should experience the glory of God through our life. Samuel Rutherford was a banished covenanter from Scotland, and from his letters through intense persecution, we can see he was a man who looked for and saw the glory of God, the beauty, the power, and the bright splendor of Jesus. He writes, Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. What a singing life is there. There's not a dumb bird in all that large field, but all sing and breathe out heaven, joy, glory, and dominion to the high prince of that newfound land. And verily the land is sweeter that he is the glory of that land. This is like Revelation 19. He wasn't just trying to write a Hallmark card, right? He wasn't just trying to think of wonderful things to say, like high-sounding things to talk about God. He was uh, a threat of being killed. He was willing to die. He was like those heroes we read about. And this was the, he was just writing a letter that he didn't know I was going to read today to someone about, this is reality. Heaven is greater because Jesus is there. There's not a dumb bird in the field there. They all sing. I can hear the music of heaven. In Revelation 19, you don't have to turn there, it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like a sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying hallelujah for the lord for the lord our god the almighty reigns that's part of why we can say the sound in heaven over this one man here like this he's saying like a sound of a great multitude the sound of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns Samuel Rutherford goes on to write, Oh, how sweet to be all of Jesus and holy in Christ, to dwell in Emmanuel's high and blessed land and to live in that sweetest air where no wind blows but the breathings of the Holy Ghost 
No sea nor floods flow, but the pure water of life that flows from under the throne of the Lamb. No planting, but the tree of life that yields twelve manner of fruits every month. What do we hear but sin and suffer? Oh, when shall the night be gone? The shadows flee away, and the morning of the long, long day without cloud or night dawn. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. So Paul said, I have the sufferings of Christ in abundance. I have the comfort in Christ in abundance. Samuel Rutherford is saying the exact same thing. He begins this, what I've read here, he, such a joy in his heart to be Christ. But he also, we see here some suffering. He says, what do we do here but sin and suffer? Oh, when shall the night be gone and the shadows flee away? But he has a hope, right? The morning of the long, long day without cloud or night, the spirit and the bride say, come. So, as Phil was preaching last week, uh, one, of, one of the things I thought about, I, I think I shared after the meeting, was think of what your life would be like without the cross. Or, uh, to phrase that another way, think of your life without the testing of faith. Think if you, you know how our flesh hates the testing of our faith. Think back over your life, the last 40, 50, 30, 20, 10 years, 5 years, 1 year. What would your life be like if your faith wasn't tested? It's tested through difficulty. It's tested through somebody hurting you. It's tested through somebody giving you praise. It's tested through receiving a gift or like so many ways. God allows our faith to be tested. And he says in Scripture that the testing of our faith, if it proves to be pure, pure is greater than gold. It's a great treasure. But it only comes about as we're tested, the testing of our faith. And hopefully as we get older and older, that testing of our faith proves it to be stronger and more pure and stronger and stronger and stronger and it becomes a blessing to others, and we need those testings in our life. If we endure because we see the glory of Christ, then we'll endure for the joy set before us. We endure these testings, we want to endure these testings of our faith for the glory of Christ. If we're seeing that the glory of Christ is to be had in my testing of my faith, What is to be had in the cross that may come into your life or the testing of your faith? What's on the other side of that? The glory of Christ. It should be our hope that, okay, this is hard, this stinks, I wish I wasn't going through it, but God can turn everything for good. And on the other side of it, there's the glory of Christ, the reality of Christ. That's what I want to get to. And so I'm going to endure this. Now, if you don't, if you just say, this is terrible, this is too hard, which I certainly have done, then what's the tendency? To get disappointed, discouraged, I want to give up. There's not the hope beyond the testing of faith. So turn to Hebrews 12.2. Let's ask ourselves a few questions from Hebrews 12.2. You know it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So I wanted to, I'm going to here go backwards in that verse a little bit, ask ourselves some questions. How do we endure the cross without becoming bitter? And how did Jesus? How did Jesus and I endure the cross without becoming hardened by discouragement? How do I endure the cross without fighting back? So in that verse, halfway through there, it says, Who for the joy set before him? So ask yourself, what is the joy set before you? Lisa was watching a show yesterday about this lady that declutters your house, and that's where you can find joy. So I was teasing her all day about that. (laughs) Anybody else know that person, or you know what I'm talking about? What was the joy set before Jesus? And what was the should be the joy set before us so that we'll endure the cross? John Owen wrote, The peace which some people enjoy is mere stupidity. It is a great evidence of the power of unbelief that we can be happy without experience the reality of Christ's presence in us by His Spirit. We can be quite happy without any of the joy, peace, comfort, or assurance which are promised in the gospel. Can you relate? Do you know what he's saying by experience? He says we can be quite happy without any of the joy, peace, comfort, or assurance which are promised in the gospel. Owen says, how can we possibly believe the promises concerning heaven, immorality, and glory when we do not believe the promises concerning our present life? If we only experience the trouble but not the comforts of the gospel. We must lay the blame squarely on our own shoulders. So John Owen's writing here, exactly along the lines of that verse by Paul, that I experienced the sufferings of Christ in abundance. I also experienced the comfort of Christ in abundance through the power of the Holy Spirit. And something that spurs us on is that our eyes are fixed. We'll see at the beginning of the verse, right? Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. John Owen says rightly, if we experience the trouble but not the comforts of the gospel, we are to blame ourselves. Enduring the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him. Jesus again in John 17 describes that joy. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Remember the proverb talking about wisdom and Jesus, this joy of perfect oneness with his dad, his father. He had that as this was part of the joy. I believe that he saw set before him. I'll endure the cross. I know what's on the other side. I was there with my dad, creating, enjoying, playing. And that's where I'm going to end up when I go through this. All things are mine. All things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine, Jesus is saying. And I've been glorified in them. Paul says something very similar to the Corinthians. If you turn to chapter 3, you can put your finger in 12 if you want to stay there. If not, no big deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Paul is telling them there, you know, stop boasting in men, stop boasting in yourselves. He says, chapter 3, verse 21, I'll start there. It says, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. What is, he, he says, all things belong to you. The you, he's talking to the Corinthians. All things belong, stop boasting in men. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. What, what does that mean? He says, verse 23, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Earlier, he's telling them, you know, they're fighting against each other. He says, do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So we should have a respect for every Christian. That's a word for every believer. You're the, Paul was telling him, every one of you here that has come to faith in Christ, you're, you're, he calls them God's building. You're a temple of God. And now he's saying all things belong to you. Why does he say that? Because those last few verses he said, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And Jesus said the same thing there in John 17, all things are mine and everything I have is yours. And he's saying there, Paul's saying, Apollos, myself, these people that you're boasting about, we all belong to God. They're, and we belong to the church. And we're here to serve the church. We're servants of God who've been placed in this church. That's all we are. Paul says earlier about himself, he says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So Paul's saying there, I'm nothing, right? He's saying none of these men are anything. No person that stands up here, no person that serves the lunch, no, no person is anything, but he says it's God who causes the growth. So in the minds of the Corinthians, Paul's trying to make God become bigger and bigger and bigger. See the glory of God. You're just a servant. You're not anything, and neither am I. We're not anything, he says. Paul's saying, I'm nothing. This is the same man at the beginning that had been caught up into the third heaven, seen all these kind of, heard inexpressible words, all of that. God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him that he wouldn't exalt himself. And so he realizes, I'm not anything. But it's God who causes the growth. God is the important one. Everything belongs to God. He is supreme and every person in the family of God are servants of Christ. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. With this attitude, we will have a joy set before us, Jesus Christ. In our suffering, when we suffer, when we go through those difficulties that Paul talked about, it, it, Jesus becomes more than a doctrine, right? You've experienced that. You've, oh man, Jesus was a little bit of a doctrine to me because I'm not experiencing the life that I know that he promised through this difficulty 
And then we can run to God and say, I want you to be more than just a doctrine, more than just a profession. In Peter, Peter writes, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Hebrews 12.2 again, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He is the author and perfecter of faith. Where does real endurance come from? Where does real endurance come from? As soon as we take our eyes off of Jesus, we start to fail. Or we start to give up. We must fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. What does this mean? How does this happen? 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? How does the Bible tell us? How do I fix my eyes on the perfecter and finisher of faith? 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is a miraculous work of God that should be happening throughout our life. First, the veil is removed in Christ. Now our eyes are open, able to see, and we earnestly desire and ask for the Comforter to come into us so we can experience the life-changing, comforting presence of God within us. One of the thing that's, things that I've learned that's good for us to keep in mind is that we, we don't see crystal clear like we talked about. So it's important for brothers and sisters that we open our hearts to them and allow them to speak into our life because we can get in a situation, you've experienced it, where there's something down in there that's not right. And I'm reading my Bible and... Oh, that's what I should do. But it's settling on a hurt there in my heart. And I'm finding, as I'm reading, something in Scripture that I think God wants me to to do that may not be His will because there's that hurt in there or there's that anger in there or there's that pride in there. And I, I, I only see dark. So do you. We only see darkly. We only see, it says here, as if in a mirror. That means I don't, I don't see it like I see this microphone right here. Sometimes in my heart it feels like I see the glory of Christ like that. But it's telling us there. So it's important for us to be uh, in fellowship with other brothers and sisters um, that can help us sometimes see clearly when we might not be you know, acting on the way God wants us to. I guess a little bit of short background on that is that uh, I was reading a book about forgiveness and part of it was there's a, in Matthew it says if uh, maybe help me if you if you go to a brother and tell him that he sinned against you and he repents he's forgiven 
Like, oh, I should go to Santosh and tell him all the ways he's sinned and hurt me so we can have fellowship again and um, we can it can be restored. Now I know there in my heart there's some hurt there. And so I'm thinking about that for a day and I'm making this case in my mind about this and thinking, oh, this is what needs to be done. This is what you, okay, you're going to write a letter and you can blah, blah, blah. Then I ran into Mark Farber at the store and I shared with him what was on my heart about it. And he said, oh, Reese, if, if there's an unsettledness in your heart, I'd be careful. I, wouldn't, I don't know if that's what God wants you to do. It's like, oh. But then I shared last Sunday those verses in 1 Peter where Jesus was reviled and he didn't revile in, in return. So I'm not saying people never should be confronted with sin. They should be. But there a brother helped me from maybe doing something I don't think God really wanted me to do. But there's something still there in my heart that wanted me to act on God's word and call it God. And Almost done. What are the lusts and corruptions within our hearts? Or I should hang on. John Owen writes, But all of us have a corrupt, natural darkness on our minds, a mental depravity which prevents us from beholding the glory of Christ. Then there are those who understand, whose understanding has been enlightened to perceive and discern spiritual things. But this enlightenment is only partial in this world, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Some are more enlightened than others, but however much we are enlightened, our corrupt nature is ready and waiting to obstruct our view of the glory of Christ by such things as love for the world, sensual pleasures, and other things which weaken our spiritual, spiritual ability to behold Christ. He's saying, this was a great man of God, right? Like He's saying, I still see there in my heart, there's things there in my heart that darken, that corrupt. It's my own lust, my own pleasures. As James says, it's our pleasures waging war, our lust, our murder of others, our envy that causes fighting and quarrels. What does this mean practically in our church or in our life? You want and I want revenge sometimes. I have this testing of my faith and I want revenge. There's part of me that wants to take wants justice, wants revenge. What's the glory of Christ in that? I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying God says don't take revenge. I'm not saying things don't need to be confronted. But the glory of Christ in this situation for me was where God says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not only does God tell us what not to do, He tells us what to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Another area in Peter, he says, you're being reviled. Do you know what that word means, reviled? It means to be vilified. We know what a villain is from the movies, right? How do you like being made a villain? He said Jesus was. Jesus was reviled. He was made to look like a villain. People said things about him that made him look like this is a total villain. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. 
It means you're being dishonored. You've been exposed as a spectacle to others. Have you ever been dishonored by the actions of others? Have you ever been exposed as a spectacle to others? Think of Jesus with Pilate. If there was anyone who ever lived by a million miles that didn't deserve to be up there with Pilate, it was Jesus. And even Pilate, though he was blinded, the veil, he didn't turn to Christ. But the glory of Christ in that situation made him uncomfortable. He didn't know, like, wow, this is way beyond anything I've ever experienced. That was the glory of Christ that Pilate... So what's the glory of Christ when, we're be, when we've been reviled, been made a villain, been dishonored? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, that we might die to sin. But we're not left there, Right? You're not left to just die to sin. You're to also live to righteousness. As I see the glory of Christ in all these things, I die to sin, God says, and He also promises, I live to righteousness. We can't miss that second half, or it gets way out of balance. And you're just walking around morbid, upset, cast down, die, die, die to sin, die to sin, die to sin, die to sin. But we don't experience live. To righteousness. Amen. He was telling the Corinthians there, don't you realize what you are? You know what you know what kind of sin was in the Corinthian church, right? Don't you know you're you're a holy building of God's? That was the other side of stop sinning. Don't you realize what God has done in your life? Or uh, I gotta stop, or I'm gonna get in big trouble from lots of people. <laughs> All right, I'm fast forwarding to the last quote. Hang on. John Owen said, Let us examine ourselves. Do we long and desire to see the reality of Christ's glory in heaven? Are you afraid of dying? I've totally, I've been there, afraid. He's saying, Do we long and desire to see the reality of Christ's glory in heaven? Are we meditating on that perfect image of Christ's glory given to us in the gospel? Or are we too filled with this world and its concerns? As believers beholding the glory of Christ in the glass of the gospel, we are changed into the same image and likeness by the Spirit of the Lord. So those beholding the beauty of the world and the things that are in it through the cursed glass of self-love are in their minds changed into this image. So he makes a huge contrast there. As believers beholding the glory of Christ in the glass of the gospel, the other glass is the glass of self-love. We are changed into the same image and likeness by the Spirit of the Lord. So those beholding the beauty of the world and the things that are in it through the cursed glass of self-love are in their minds changed into its image. But we have not so learned Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to help us see the glory of Christ. That this would be the hope 
set before each one of us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, teach us to do that, Father, that we would endure the testing, the cross, the difficulties in our life, and that we would all have hope that you call us. We want to die to sin, and we want to experience living in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ being our clothing. Help us to walk with dignity and love for you, humility. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.